Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. It's Lord's Day 13c, question 34, and our title for today is He is Lord. And that's truly amazing. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. When I was a teenager, we used to sing a chorus in our youth fellowship. He is Lord, he is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those words state a wonderful truth, that the Lord Jesus, that God's only begotten Son, who died on the cross for sinners, who rose from the dead on the third day, is exalted. He is Lord. Our catechist asks in question 24, why do you call him our Lord? And the answer we must give is because not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, he has redeemed and purchased us, body and soul, from sin and from all the power of the devil to be his own. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So the Catechist is still teaching us the biblical truths that lie behind the Apostles' Creed. He's teaching us about Christ, and he has already taught us that Jesus is our only Saviour, and that he is called Christ, the Messiah, and that he is the only natural Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, of the same substance or essence. The Apostles' Creed reads, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. So how is Jesus our Lord? And interestingly, when the Catechist answers this question, he makes it intensely personal. Jesus is our Lord because we belong to him. As we saw in a previous lesson, since we are not God's children by natural birth, we are enslaved by our own wicked natural father, the devil. He has us under his authority. He is a tyrannical, lying, evil father who will bring us to everlasting damnation and we are powerless to escape from his cruel grip. We could not even purchase our salvation by any material means, even though many have tried. 
giving to a church or giving to a charity or supporting a good cause simply cannot purchase enough merit to remove us from Satan's grip. Jesus, God's own natural Son, the eternally begotten of the Father, came into this world to set us free. And Jesus said in John 8 and 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. When Jesus redeemed us, he bought us back. That's the first lesson that we learn from the Catechist. He has redeemed and purchased us. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And we all need to be redeemed. There's a lovely illustration of this in the Old Testament story of Hosea and his unfaithful wife, Gomer. Gomer was a prostitute, and she did what prostitutes do. She sold herself to other men. Hosea left her gifts and was kind to her and loved her. None of that stopped her. In fact, she attributed all his love to her paying lovers and not to her husband. Her condition worsened, and like everyone who leads a debauched life, she eventually found that her body was wracked with pain and disease and sores and bruises. Her lovers, who once were so willing to pay for her services, didn't want her anymore. Her beauty was gone. Her body was no longer desirable. She's just another piece of worthless human waste. She falls into deep poverty and hunger, and she sells herself as a slave, and is further abused until she ends up as no more than a piece of human meat, a worthless object of derision and disgust, standing for sale in the slave market, waiting for someone to buy her and finally to work her to death. And that's when God intervened. Hosea is to love the unlovable. Hosea is to buy her back. A price is to be paid. Fifteen shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. What would Hosea do? He must have raised all the money he could get. He went down to the slave market and he paid the price to buy her back from the slave market of sin. And that's pretty much what God did for us when he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to pay the price for all of our sins, he redeemed us from the slave market of sin. When we were worthless, useless slaves of the devil, he redeemed us. When we were worthless and hopeless, he loved us. When we were utterly unlovable, and he paid the price to buy us back, we are his purchased possession. So in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 to 19, we read these words. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, sometimes evangelical sing a hymn, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Now that will have repercussions for us. 
The next thing that the Catechist teaches us is that when he redeemed us, he redeemed both body and soul. The Catechist insists that when Jesus bought us back from our slavery, that was far more than a spiritual transaction. He owns us both body and soul. Now we really need to think that one through and apply it to our lives. It's easy to uh, think of the results of his redeeming work on the soul. Of course it is. We have new hearts. We have a change of status. We are God's adopted children. We have new life within us. We abhor our sins. We live repentant lives. We have an eternal home, and so on and so on. But if he owns my body, that affects what I do with my body. Now, we're not going to start making a list. The bottom line is simply this, that everything we do physically with our bodies must be glorifying to God. If something is not glorifying to God, then we simply should not do it. And that means that our work and our speech and our dress and our leisure time, our recreation, all should come under the scrutiny of God's word and should be in harmony with the principles we're taught there, even the most mundane things. When we go about our work and our leisure, we do it with the thought that we have been redeemed in body as well as soul. The Bible is very clear about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So he has redeemed us, bought us back. He bought us back both body and soul. And when he did that, he set us free from sin and the devil. That's the next teaching point from the Catechism. He sets us free from sin and from all the power of the devil. Again in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. We're set free. That doesn't mean we've stopped sinning. When the Bible speaks of our redemption using the word saved, rescued, it always does so in three separate tenses. It talks about us being saved in the past tense. It speaks of a day in our experience when we trusted Christ. A day when our eternal destiny was settled forever. A day when the Holy Spirit regenerated us and came to dwell within us. On that day we were saved. That day, that moment of regeneration, is a once-for-all experience of salvation. On that day we are delivered from death and sin and hell. Ephesians 2 and 5, that very well-known verse says, Even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. But not only are we saved in the past tense, we're saved in the present tense. We are being saved because there's also a continuous experience of salvation. It is happening within us right now. It's a description of God's work in the Holy Spirit every day in the life of the believer. He guides us and he gives us his love and joy and peace and makes us every day more like the Lord. That's sanctification and equips us to serve him. So many times that the 
word saved appears in the New Testament, it appears in a present tense. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence also, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good purpose. We are saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. There's a future tense aspect to our salvation. There's a day coming when our redemption will be complete. That day will be the great day of resurrection when the Lord will return. When the dead in Christ shall rise and we shall be changed to be like him. At present we are saved from the power of sin. We are saved from sin's awful penalty, for the wages of sin is death. But then on that day, we will be free eternally from the presence of sin. And so Paul could say in Romans 13 and verse 11, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. So we are set free, and we are set free from sin and the devil. And then the Catechist tells us that he redeemed us for a purpose. He redeemed us to be his own. We are his purchased possession forever and ever. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 says, You are bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He owns us. He is our Lord. He has rightful claims over us. And we, his people, we readily acknowledge those claims to be good and to be true. And we bow our knee to him. Think about how he redeemed us. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. He didn't redeem us with material devices, not with worldly coinage or currency or anything that we would pay, but with his own precious blood. You know, as I was preparing this lesson back in August 2021, the news was filtering through of the Taliban advances in Afghanistan following the premature Western withdrawal from that tortured land. The scenes on the news were horrendous, with people so terrified of what would befall them under the Muslim fundamentalist group that some actually tried to escape by clinging to the wings and the fuselage of departing aeroplanes. Many people fell to their death. In the cities and in Kabul itself, the Taliban were establishing their right to rule in a violent military coup overthrowing the legitimate government. They demanded obedience from the people. They forced their governance upon the citizenry by shedding people's blood, by executing summary judgments, by taking prisoners. They were overlords in every sense of the word. Our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, demands our loyalty. He demands our obedience, our complete allegiance not by means of a military coup, but by shedding his own blood for us, by satisfying God's justice 
for us by setting the prisoners free. His lordship is the very opposite of the lordships of this world. So Jesus is Lord. He is our Lord right now. As we humble ourselves before him in submission and acknowledge him as Lord and King, he owns us, we are his, and we respect his claims and his rule over us. To call someone my Lord is to give them their position. It is to acknowledge them as being of greater worth than us. It is to signify obedience and servitude. Jesus is my Lord of right. He's my Lord because of his divine, eternal sonship. He's my Lord because he created me. He's my Lord because he redeemed me. He's my Lord because he keeps and sustains me. I owe everything to Christ. He is my Lord. To say that he is my Lord is to acknowledge that he is my master and that I will be his servant and Give him the obedience and the reverence that he is due. So willingly, my knee will bow and my tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This unconverted Christ-rejecting world rejects those claims of lordship. But there will come a day when the whole of mankind will stand before Christ in his risen eternal splendour and will admit his sovereignty. Sadly, on that day, it will be too late. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.